Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to look at Psalm 34. And the title of our study today is Taste and See. This is a continuation of our walk through the book of Psalms, looking at uh, each chapter of Psalms and what it means. And when we get to Psalm 119, it might we might break that up a little more. But today we're going to look at Psalm 34 and taste and see. Would you uh, please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you first that your word is true. And that as Titus 1-2 says, you're, you are a God who never lies. You are immutable. You are unchanging. Your promises are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Because you are a holy, you are a good, you are a just God. And so, Lord, as we look today at this psalm, may we be reminded, may you stir our affections by your Spirit with the truth of your Word, that we might know you more, that we might love you more, and as a result, our obedience would be grounded and rooted not in our performance, but in what you have done and what you have said in your word. And so, Lord, help us as your people, as we open now your word. May you bless the preaching of your word. May your spirit use the word as you say in Isaiah 55, 11, that your word will not return without void, that it will go forth and it will accomplish all that it aims to do. And so, Lord, we thank you that your word is true and that all the promises, as 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, are all centered and found and revealed in your word. And so, Lord, as we look at this text now, may our delight and our affections be raised and may our response to our time together be one of worship and thankfulness and gratitude for the grace of God revealed in the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us this time, that you have given us the 66 books that constitute the Word of God, and that they are for our good, and they are for our instruction, and they are alone sufficient. They are enough for us to know you, to love you, to to serve you out of gratitude for the grace that you have given to us in Christ. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Our chapter today in Psalm says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. 
The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the broken heart, hearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him shall be condemned. This is the reading of God's precious, holy word. Psalm 34 is an invitation. It's a, it's a happy, it's a joyful invitation. The Lord has rescued David in doubt. David wants to trust the Lord. He wants to worship the Lord. He wants you, us today, to look, to see, to taste and see, to fear and to know God for ourselves. And since the Holy Spirit inspired David to write this psalm, this invitation comes from God himself. He wants you to know him. He wants you to see him. He wants you to taste and to see and to know his goodness, to rejoice in him. You see, God is good. And what this means is, isn't just, you know, that we give thankful, thanksgiving to God and, and express gratitude to him. But when was the last time you gave thanks to the Lord for, you know, you drove to work and you arrived safely. Did you give thanks to God? You returned home and did you give thanks to God? Did you give thanks to God if you're married for your spouse today? Uh, did you give thanks to God for the job that you have? Do you, do you see my point? We too easily presume on the goodness of God, but God is good. And and whatever good thing that we have, the Bible clearly tells us it, it comes from the hand of God. And so we should not presume on the goodness of God. And as, as we're going to see today, what, what the psalmist is going to do is he's going to press the goodness of God more and more into our hearts and into our lives. And it's, it's going to be convicting to us. Now, David wrote Psalm 34 when God rescued him from one of the most dangerous situations in his life. This is only one of 14 psalms that come with a historical setting in the life of King David. And the superscript of Psalm 34 says this, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And this records in David's life in 1 Samuel 21. David there in 1 Samuel 21 was running from his life from King Saul. And Saul had tried to pin David to the wall with a spear three times and then sent a team of assassins after him. David was so desperate that he fled to Gath, one of the five main cities of the Philistines. 
Gath was Goliath's hometown, the giant he had killed years earlier. Of course, they would want to know who David was. And to make matters worse, David was carrying Goliath's sword, which they were sure to recognize. And after David hit Goliath between the eyes with a stone, he had taken Goliath's sword and cut off Goliath's head. And this is the ultimate humiliation for a warrior to be executed in public with your own weapon. And now David was carrying this famous sword back into Goliath's hometown. The people of Gath did recognize him, of course, and reported his presence to the king. The king's name was Achish, but our psalm calls him Abimelech, which literally means my father is king. In fact, Abimelech was probably a title the Philistines used for their kings, much like the Egyptians called their king, Pharaoh. Now, David had fallen uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire. He was at the mercy of his enemy, Abimelech, and he was terrified. And what could he do? David was so desperate that he pretended he lost his mind, scratching the doorpost, letting saliva run down his beard. And Abimelech fell for it, and he said it was servants in 1 Samuel 21, 14-15. Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? And so instead of killing David, he kicked him out of the city. In fact, this experience of God's protection made such an impression on David that he wrote two psalms about it. Psalm 56 records David's prayer while he was a prisoner in Gath. Psalm 34 is a song he sang after he was set free. Psalm 34, which we're looking at today, is an acrostic psalm with only two exceptions. Each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet so that it's easier to learn. David wanted Israel to learn that God saves his people. You see, if you belong to the Lord, the Lord will rescue you. And now there's two main invitations in Psalm 34. In verses 1 through 10, David invites us to rejoice with him in God's deliverance. In verses 11 through 22, David invites us to learn from him. The first half of Psalm 34 is a song. The second half is a sermon. David wants us to taste and to see the goodness of God for ourselves. The Lord delivers his people from every trouble. And the first half of this psalm is quite persuasive. David wants to to convince us to worship God, to experience the joy of trusting the Lord. He is trying to convince us to taste God's goodness for ourselves. And without being too trite, David does the same thing that we might do if we're attempting to convince a friend to try a new restaurant. First, we might rave to our friend how great it is and to invite them to come with us, right? And then we explain specifically what we liked about the restaurant, the food that we ate here. And finally, we push our friend, try it, try it, you'll like it. Now, David follows the same pattern here in this psalm. He praises God and he invites us to worship him with him in verses 1 through 3. And then he gives his testimony to God's deliverance in verses 4 through 7. And finally, he pushes us to taste and to see God for ourselves in verses 8 through 10. Psalm 34, 1 through 3 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boasts in the Lord. Let, all, let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, why didn't David just keep this to himself? Why did it matter that we join him in worship to the Lord? 
This is because joy is not complete until joy is shared. If you enjoy that meal, you might even, you know, like my wife and I, I'll be like, you know, this is so good, sweetheart. You're going to want some of this. And she's like, fine, give, give me some. But I'm going to use my own fork and I'm, I'm going to try it. And she does and she likes it. And why is that? Because you enjoy the experience more when you share it with others. This is why enjoying watching sports with other people after a great play, you turn to your friend and say, did you see that? That was unbelievable. You see, our delight in God and our joy in what he has done grows when we share it with others. You see, we can't help but share the things that we love. And we have to be careful here because, you know what, when we, when we talk about this, we can give the impression that, you know what, well, I love my sports and that, that's okay. You, you enjoy that particular hobby. Where, where we go into air is when we elevate our sports. We elevate our hobbies above God. And sadly, we're living in a time today when, when we even have to say this and have this kind of conversation out loud. Because some people think, well, it's just optional to, to go to church. And yet Hebrews 10 tells us very clearly, it gives us a command in the context of a book written to people who were suffering and being persecuted for the church. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them to not forsake the fellowship of the brothers. We are living in a time when this radical individualism is rampant and it's also all about me. It's, it's all about being uh, satisfied with yourself, being happy with yourself. And yet what God gives us is something greater. He gives us himself and he alone is enough. And our joy will never be enough even in the Lord, if we don't share it with others. We, we cannot help but tell other people about the things that we love. You tell, you tell somebody who's into, a guy who's into football not to tell you about his favorite team, and he's going to look at you weird. You tell a lady not to, to, to tell you about you know, her makeup or whatever with other women and so on and so forth, that, that lady's going to look at you weird. We cannot help but tell other people about the things that we love. And all these things are less in importance and less in significance than the supremacy of an all-sufficient God who has given us himself in Christ. In fact, if you have experienced God's power and God's grace in your life, you want to tell others about it so that you can enjoy more of God yourself. And that's why there's genuine joy, should be genuine joy, as we talk around the dinner table about what the Lord has done as he's revealed himself and his word more and more to us. Our joy grows as we share our love for him as a family. This is also why it's so important to come to church. You know, we can today watch church on the internet, just like we could watch a football game on TV, but there's a different dynamic when we're together, together doing life with one another, worshiping, lifting our hearts to the Lord, sitting under the preached word of God. 
in person. As we sing and we talk, we pray, we are telling each other what God has done in our joy in the Lord. You see, you need the local church to complete your joy in Christ. And it's worth noticing how David praises God in these verses. David blesses God and magnifies him. And this might be surprising. How can a human being bless God? After all, God himself is eternally blessed. How could we add anything to him? He is the source of every blessing, and he is infinitely exalted above the heavens. How could we magnify the Lord or even make him greater than he already is? And the answer is, when you bless God, you recognize, you praise God for who he is. You're not giving him anything as if God was an insecure teenager who needed affirmation and a pat on the back. But you're saying, Lord, you are blessed. So we magnify God together. We are not making him greater, but we are setting his greatness before our eyes and we are praising him for it. This means that worship is the most sane and the most rational thing to do. We see reality. We see the greatness of God and we align our hearts with the truth revealed in the word of God. And let me be perfectly honest with you here. This is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. The world actively resists God, hates the authority of God revealed in the word of God. They would rather have a plethora of deities to lift up their hearts too. And it fights against, our world does, against the God of the Bible. It does not like or even love the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ in the word of God. It cannot bless him. It cannot magnify him. But God says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has set eternity on our hearts. This is why the worship, the elevation of self continues on. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, or not 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Timothy uh, 4, that the love of many will grow cold. They, they would rather have preachers and teachers who itch their ears. Why? Because they are satisfied with a lesser pleasure. That's why, that's why the psalmist wants us to magnify God. God is the one who made us. He's the one who upholds us. He's the one who alone can satisfy us. As we considered in Psalm 16, he is the one who has pleasures forevermore in himself because he himself is sufficient in and of himself. And that is why, that is why friends, the, the elevation of self-love is an egregious thing in our day. The elevation of self, at the, even at the same level of God, is error. It's blasphemy. And it's happening all around us. Well, just think your thoughts. Just your feelings are the most important thing. Really? So we are at the center. We are at the center, not God. And yet God is the one who made us. He's the one who fashioned us. He's the one who upholds this world by the word of his power. Without him, we would not be able to breathe for one moment. And yet, we say that we are enough. But God's people, they see him, they love him. They rejoice in his greatness and glory. They do not presume on his goodness, his beauty, his power, his magnificence, they cannot help but, uh, the people of God cannot help but lift up the name of God because they know the Lord. And now David boasts in the Lord in Psalm 34, 
Verse 2, what does it mean to brag about God? We brag on him. He, we show how superior he is to every puny thing that competes with him because he is sufficient. Let's be clear, this boasting is not empty words. David backs up his boasting in the Lord with his own personal testimony. Psalm 34, 4-7 through says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cries and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. And when David says in verse 4, I sought the Lord, he does not mean that God was lost or hiding him. The Hebrew word sought in this verse is never used when we don't know where something is. Rather, seeking the Lord here means to ask of God or to inquire of him. David is looking for direction from God. And God answered, and he rescued David from his fears. And David's experience here was not unique only for him. God answers and protects everyone who loves him. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. He watches over and he protects his people. In fact, there's another story in the Old Testament that illustrates this as well. In 2 Kings 6, Elisha and his servant were trapped in the city of Dotham. And during the night, the king of Assyria sent his army to surround the city. And when they woke up the next morning, Elisha's servant was terrified. What shall we do? He cried in 2 Kings 6.15. Lish's answer is famous in 2 Kings 6, uh, 16-17. He says, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. Now God surrounds his people and he saves them from every danger. This was David's experience as a prisoner in Goliath's hometown. Is your experience too if you love God and fear him? In fact, let me ask you, what fears are you carrying today? Not many of us are afraid for our lives as David was, but you might be afraid for your job. You might be afraid for your children. You might be afraid for the well-being of those you know. You might be afraid for your marriage. You might be afraid for your retirement. You might be afraid for the future of our country. Cast all your cares, Scripture says in 1 Peter 5, 7, because he cares for you. And what's interesting, even before he says this, we're to humble ourselves before the Lord. We're to humble ourselves before the Lord, recognizing that he is the one who is worthy. He is the one who is worthy of all honor and glory and power. So we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, 1 Peter 5, 6 says. Because 1 Peter 5, 7 says he cares for us. In fact, if you carry around the weight of your fears, it's going to take a toll on your physical being. And you can see worry written in somebody's face. In fact, this is why verse 5 is so precious. In many of the ancient versions, verse 5 is a command, not a statement. It says, look to the Lord and shine. Don't let your face be ashamed. If you turn to God and look to him for help, the peace and the joy that the Lord gives will be all over your face. And this is because when we look to the Lord, we are not trusting ourselves. We are looking to the Lord. We are trusting him. We are casting our cares, our burdens, our fears, our struggles on him who alone is sufficient in and of himself. 
And after the invitation and the testimony, David continues his persuasion by urging us, by pushing us to experience God for ourselves. Psalm 34, 8 through 10 says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And David can say, but believe that the Lord is good. And we should certainly believe that. But David is not just affirming a point of doctrine. He tells us to taste and to see. The only way that you're going to know that honey is sweet if you actually taste it for yourself. Anything else is secondhand knowledge and it will not satisfy you. In fact, many Christians today have a secondhand experience of God's goodness. They have heard sermons after sermon about God's goodness. Their parents have told them that the Lord is good. Others have told them that the Lord is good. They truly believe that God is good, but they haven't tasted and seen for themselves that the Lord is good. And why not? Because when we're faced with our fears, with our loneliness, with our struggles, we do not turn to God for refuge. They may have trusted God with their minds, but they do not, they have not trusted him with their lives. They do not know for themselves what David knows, that God cares for his people and delivers them from every trouble and every fear. They will always be splashing in the shallows when they can dive into the ocean of the goodness of God. David wants us to act on what we know of the goodness of God when we're in trouble. Only then will we taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is such a, an important point that I really want to take a little bit of time here and press at home. Because we often associate knowledge, knowing something with today, and especially in our Western world, with having that information, but this is a, just a theoretical knowledge. The kind of knowing that David has in mind here is, is the knowing that the Bible talks about. You see, the, word, the, the idea for knowledge, it begins in the heart, not in the head. This is why Jesus talks about repeatedly, for example, in Luke, Luke 6.45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why? Because until the heart is changed, the tongue will not change. Until, until who we are, our identity is changed. We are at war with God. This is why Paul tells us that we're, we're, to, uh, we're to appeal to everyone in 2 Corinthians 5 to be reconciled to God because only by being reconciled with God can they be a new creation, as he says, in Christ. And this is what God does. He takes we who are at war with God and he reconciles us to himself through the person and the work of Christ. This is why knowledge begins in the heart. And it protrudes out into all of life. That's why at the beginning of this message I talked about, we should not presume on the goodness of God. When, we're, when we drive, you know, and we, we drive somewhere, <coughs> we should ask the Lord, Lord, please help me to return safely. And when we get to where we're going, we should give thanks to the Lord for his help. We should not presume on that. When we, when we even get out of the grocery store, when we walk in the grocery store, thank you, Lord, for your provision to buy groceries. And thank you for keeping me safe in the grocery store. We don't, we don't know what could happen even in a moment. And, and when we get home, thank you, Lord, with the groceries. Thank you, Lord, 
for helping me to drive safely, for not for helping me to not get in an accident. Thank you, Lord. And this way we're expressing thankfulness to God. By the way, thankfulness is a command in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's easy just to say the right things and to affirm a doctrine, but until it becomes real in our lives, until we've taken it's taken hold in our lives it's, and it's transforming us, let's be honest, we don't really know that doctrine. In fact, the Pharisees, they, they were the teachers of Israel. And Jesus does something amazing in John 5, 39. He, he tells them, the teachers of Israel, that all of Scripture testifies of him. And yet they've missed the point. That's the point. They've missed the point that the whole Old Testament was about Jesus. We can do the same. We can miss Today, we have the 66 books of the Word of God. We can fill our minds with more and more Scripture, and we can fill our minds with great systematic theology and great information about church history. But see, that that is to provide a foundation for our lives. And that foundation, that sound theology coming from God's Word and, and, and Orthodox theology is a good thing. <coughs> but it should lead to something. It should lead to be it, it affecting our lives. And that's that's what David is, is after here. Not just only that we know the goodness of God doctrinally, but how is the goodness of God impacting our lives personally? You know, lions are great hunters and predators. They're the least likely of all the beasts to go hungry. They symbolize power and self-sufficiency, the qualities that make someone great in our world. And yet the self-confident predators of this world, the men of violence will all come up empty. And yet as Christians, we'll not lack anything we need. God may not give us everything we want, like a genie in a bottle, but he will provide for everything we need. And one day we will give he will give us the best of all. He will bring us home to heaven where he goes in John 14. He says he goes to prepare a place for us and he will take us home to heaven. And he will give us himself face to face and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. That's a promise of what God will do for his people. Those who were redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And on that day, we will taste once again and see that the Lord is good in a way we never imagined. Here's another thing. Here's another way, thing. You might know that the Lord is good, but when was the last time you thanked him for helping you to fight against particular temptations or, or anxieties? When was the last time you were thankful and, and you expressed gratitude for the Lord for how he's helped you in so many ways? We, we often talk, don't talk enough about this in the church today. We just give an intellectual assent to, to various doctrines, but very practically, giving thanks to the Lord is one of the best ways to fight against sin in our lives, especially when we're talking about sexual sin. Because it, it, what sexual sin does is it puts us at the center Thankfulness puts God at the center. It says, Lord, I'm thankful for who you are, for what you are, for all that you are. 
You are my help. You are my joy. You are my shield. You are the one who I'm lifting up. You're the one that I'm worshiping. This is what's so dangerous about the self-love, self-help movement. It's all about me. Where's the thankfulness to God for his help, for his provision, for him upholding and governing our world and our lives by the word of his power? Let alone just allowing us another moment of breath in life. And after all, this is the God who knows us so well. He knows the day, the length of our days. He knows how he knows the motivation of our hearts. He knows the thoughts that we think before we even think them. And so we need to be thankful that God is a good God. And now after inviting us to praise him, David asks us to learn from the Lord. The second main invitation of Psalm 34 comes in verse 11. Psalm 34, 11 says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of God. And so David here is going to speak to us like a father speaking to his children or a teacher to his students. If you have a hard relationship with your father growing up, let David adopt you with these words and invite you into his family. And what does it mean to fear God, think of a good father and the way his children fear him. Spurgeon puts it this way. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, says this, Pay to him humble, childlike reverence, walk in his laws, have respect to his will, tremble to offend him, hasten to serve him, fear not the wrath of men, neither be tempted to sin through the, the virulence of their threats, fear God and fear nothing else. And the great secret is, is if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. That will kill the fear of man. And if you do not fear God, you will fear everything. In, in Psalm 34, David defines the fear of the Lord even more practically. He doesn't define it as an emotion, but as obedience. The fear of God is not simply an attitude. It must be an action. Psalm 34, 12 through 14 says, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking to see. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's no use saying we fear God if we will not obey and do what he has said as outlined in his word. You see, our life reveals our heart. The fear of the Lord means doing what is right. And David here balances three negatives with three positives. Negatively, the fear of the Lord means keeping our tongue from all forms of evil speech and lies. We'll be tempted to lie and to trust in falsehood to save us. We'll be tempted to do wrong in any number of ways. The fear of the Lord keeps us, to, uh, allows us to turn from evil in all of its forms. And positively, the fear of the Lord means doing good in all of its forms. And so whatever, <coughs> whatever good things are before us, we should do them. And David emphasizes that fearing the Lord means being a peacemaker, not only looking for peace, but chasing after it to run it down. And this is worth noticing because many Christians today do not value peace the way that God does. And Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And this is one of the many points of contact between Psalm 34 and the Sermon on the Mount. Being a peacemaker is hard, especially when somebody mistreats us. But if we fear God, we know that God sees and that he judges the way we act. He will reward us when we do good. Psalm 34, 15 through 18 says this, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and, he, he, and his ears towards their cry. 
The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now, the, the Apostle Peter quotes these verses in 1 Peter 3 to encourage believers not to return evil for evil and insult for insult. God promises to bless us if we do good, even when we have been treated poorly. The only way we will be able to live a godly life in a sinful world is if we fear this God who sees and knows and rewards. God knows the righteous. He sees us. His ears hear us. He himself is near us and he rescues us. And when we hear the word that God promises to bless us, we have to issue a caution that this is actually what it means to be blessed by and to bless God. This is not the health and the wealth gospel where we are at the center. This is God at the center. God is the one who, who rewards. He is the one who will do it. That's why we have to, as we talked about in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The, the, the two ways. There's a way of the righteous and there's a way of the wicked. Here is the way of the righteous, and God will bless it. He will reward it. That is not the health and the wealth gospel. That is not the name it and claim it false gospel. This is the truth. This is the way of the righteous following in the commands of God because they believe and are satisfied by none other than Christ, who alone gives new life and new desires and the desire to obey, to walk in the path of the righteous, as outlined in the word of God, it comes because we have new hearts with new desires. But, the, but we also need to talk about the other side of this. And that is that judgment is terrible. God hates sin. He sets his face against wickedness in every form. And he will cut off even the memory of those who do evil. And when, when the, the combines harvest the field, the wheat fields... The bits of husk and stock are blown like husk, like dust in the wind across the open prairie. You could not gather the chaff back together again, even if you wanted to. And so it is with those <coughs> who go on sinning. The very memory of them, Psalm 1-4 says, will be swept away. God does not exempt those who fear him from trouble. In fact, in verses 19 through 20, he teach that anyone who follows God it has to count the cost. Psalm 34, 19 through 20 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. God's people do not have a few troubles. Instead, David says that the righteous have many afflictions. Verse 19, this was seen most clearly in the life of our Lord Jesus. He is the ultimate righteous man. He was known as a man of sorrows. He was afflicted by sinful men. But God saved him by allowing him to die and then raising him from the dead on the third day. In fact, the apostle John says that verse 20 was fulfilled at the crucifixion in John 19.36. He says, these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as David reflected on God's deliverance from his enemies, the kings of Gath, uh, he prophesied and he spoke of Christ, the righteous one, who was rescued from the hands of his enemies through the cross and the resurrection. And when God rescues us from trouble, 
He does not always airlift us out of danger. He does not take away the danger. And since the psalm was fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection, we conclude that God will allow us to go through hard troubles and perhaps even die so that he can save us by raising us to resurrection life. And that's what John, Jesus says in, in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. So if you want to take refuge in him, you need the faith to believe that God gives life to the dead. If he promises to rescue you, he is able to keep his word and to save you even after you die. In the end, Psalm 34 is like Psalm 1 that I mentioned earlier, and that it leaves two ways to live. Psalm 34, 21 through 22, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The wicked hate the righteous in general, verse 22. Most of all, they hate the Lord Jesus, the righteous one, and God will find them guilty and they will be condemned. But God redeems his people and they will not be condemned. Why not? Because Jesus, the righteous one, was condemned in our place and for our sin. Do you know this God as he has revealed himself in his word? You need to taste him and see for yourself that the Lord is good. This is why Acts 16.31 says, To believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's only one way. There's only one path. There's only one who has come and paid the penalty for you in your place and for your sin. There's only one way to taste and to see and to enter into and through the pearly gates of heaven when you die. And that is only through the death and resurrection of Christ. But this is also true for us as Christians. We should not presume on the Lord's kindness. We should be humble. We should be humbled at the thought that that Christ has saved us, that Christ is even at work in us through the work of the Spirit, that he is bringing conviction when we sin. We should not live as if that doesn't matter. We should not just check the boxes and say, you know what, all is well with us. Because there's no boxes to check. We don't merit this salvation. It's not because of our performance. It's not because of how well we're doing We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we need to hear that again and again and again. I remember being in my office, the office of, well, now my dear mentor, who used to be my former pastor, one of my former pastors in Idaho. And he would he would be encouraging me, and then he would stop and he said, Dave, I know you know this. And I remember one time saying to him, The choir needs preaching too, brother preach on. Today you might be thinking, Dave, I know these things. But you know what? The the one thing that I know, no matter how long you have been a Christian, the choir needs preaching to, brother or sister. And it's not just about saying, you know what? It is well with my soul and and checking the boxes. You're reading your Bible. You're praying. You're meditating. You're memorizing. you're, You're there at church every week even. But are you just going, I need to ask, are you just going through the motions? Are you just checking the boxes? Or are you delighting in the God that you say that you love? Are you honoring him, not just with your lips, but with your heart? You see, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, obey my commandments. You see, 
obeying and obeying the commandments is only possible because you have a new heart, which you've been given if you're in union with Christ, because Christ is in you. He is the hope of glory. And so we should not sing it is well with our soul when it is not well with our soul. We should worship the Lord even in tears if we're sad and we're in grief. That The Bible gives us permission. It gives us permission to lament, as we'll see in the Psalms. See, God is not surprised by our hurts and by our pains and by our struggles. The Lord is near. He is near as this text one of our passages today in Psalm 34 says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you lost somebody in the last few years and you're hurt and you're struggling. Cast your care on the Lord. He sees you. He knows you. There's, there's nothing in your life that he doesn't see and know. In fact, this is also why, you know what? We can look at Jesus. He wept. He cried. Hebrews 4, Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, and Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 very clearly tell us that the Lord knows that, and that he sees and that he sympathizes with us in our weakness. And he still invites us to come before him, to know his goodness, to worship him for his splendor, to lift up our hearts however broken, however hurting, however struggling, however rejoicing, he invites us to come and to see and to know and to taste and see that the Lord is good. So I pray, dear Christian, that you will know that the Lord is good, that you will give him thanks, that you will worship him who is good, whose word is true and precious and all of the promises of God are, as 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, are yes and amen in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that it's not only just a theoretical, theological construct that you are good, but rather as, psalm, as, as this psalm aims to do, you press this truth home into our lives. You are good in the midst of our suffering. You are good in the midst of our grief. You are good in our prosperity. You are good when things are not even going well in our lives. You are good. So Lord, let us let us not presume on your goodness, but with joyful hearts, let us, let us worship you and let us lift up our hearts in adoration of the one who is good in all things. And let us, Lord, repent if we have presumed on your goodness, if we have presumed on, on the grace of God, and let us, as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, you are, faith, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, because you are our advocate and our high priest and our intercessor before the Father. So we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that your word is enough and that it is true and that it is sufficient for our life and for our godliness. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.
Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org. 